Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. 1945 to 1970 was a period of major transition for the United States. Despite being locked into an arms race with the Soviet Union, the U.S. evolved from being a largely military and economic powerhouse into a cultural presence at the center of the world. Louis Menand, who's a professor of English at Harvard University, a staff writer at The New Yorker, and the winner of the Pulitzer Prize in 2001 for his book, The Metaphysical Club, examines the complex dichotomy of American culture in the pivotal years from the end of World War II to Vietnam in his latest book, The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War. It's published by Farris Strauss and Giroux and brings Professor Menand to our show now. Welcome. Thank you very much, Leonard. It's great to be here and talk to you. Did the New World Order represent an end to pre-war isolationism? Oh, that certainly did. Uh, the government after 1945 decided to take an active role in global affairs um, with very few halts barred. Mm -hmm. And that produced this period that I try to capture in the book of very rapid and interesting cultural change and cultural growth. George Orwell coined the term the Cold War, but wasn't the Truman Doctrine, in effect, the declaration of that war? It was. So, of course, we were allies with the Soviet Union during the Second World War. And after 1945, when the war ended, there was a lot of uncertainty in Washington about what the future relations with the Soviets would be. Uh, but after about a year and a half, it was clear to many people in the government that Stalin was not going to be a cooperative partner in world affairs. And uh, in 1947, March 12th, Harry Truman gave a speech to a joint session of Congress requesting aid for Greece and Turkey, but articulating, as you just said, the rationale for the Cold War, which was that basically there are only two sides in the world, the free world side, the side of liberal democracy, and the totalitarian side represented by communism. And that became American policy for the next 20 years. What role did George Kennan play in the creation of the Cold War? Kennan was an important player because he believed, all, so George Kennan was an American diplomat who most of his career to this point had been spent in Europe and Germany. Uh, when the war ended, he was in the American embassy in Moscow. He had always felt that Stalin was uh, uh, not a character the United States could trust. He'd always been suspicious of Soviet motives. He'd always predicted that the Soviets would colonize Eastern Europe. This is during a period of the Roosevelt administration when there was generally a more sanguine view of how the Soviets would behave. So after the war ended, he's in Moscow in the embassy and various things are going on in the Kremlin that the State Department is concerned about. And they ask him to write a letter explaining Soviet behavior. So in February 1946, he writes what's known as the Long Telegram. And he basically spells out his view, which is that the Soviets can't be trusted, but we don't need to drop the bomb on them. What we need to do is keep them in their box and the system will eventually wither away of its own inefficiencies, and that's the doctrine of containment. And he was responding to uh, some people who saw the logical conclusion uh, of this arms race would be mutually assured destruction. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, Kennan's a tricky figure because he later, after he left the government, he later dissociated himself from the arms buildup, which was the characteristic policy of the Eisenhower administration, particularly nuclear buildup. Um, but there's elements in his theory, this doctrine of containment, that suggests that as long as the Soviets are building up a nuclear arsenal, we have to build up a bigger one. And that certainly was the logic of this country during that period. Did Stalin react to the Truman Doctrine? He did. <laughs> he did the same thing on his side. He said, there's two sides in the world. Our side were the Democrats and the other side were the imperialists. Uh, and he got all the puppet states in Eastern Europe and the communist parties in Western Europe to sign on to this, to his version of the Truman Doctrine. It's you write about it, the Cold War letters. Yeah, it's, like, it's like, it's a, it's a looking glass war. Everything they did, we did. And vice mm -hmm. versa. Everybody's following the moves of the other person. Uh, except in the arts, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, you write in your preference, preface that freedom was the slogan of the times that you're covering in this book. And, and that's a weapon of sorts to contrast the United States with the Soviet Union because we had free elections, a free press, free markets, in contrast to the dictatorship, state-controlled media, and planned economies of, of communist countries. Yeah, I mean, what I found writing the book, and I didn't realize this until I was probably two-thirds of the way through it, is that everybody uses the term freedom to justify what they're doing. This includes artists, musicians, as well as uh, politicians. Uh, and Bobby McGee, me and Bobby McGee. Freedom is just right. another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing left to lose. Yeah, it's just it's just pervasive. It's it, it, I was surprised by this. That's, that's the term that you see constantly being used. Um, I think that to go to your question, that the opposition ideologically between the two sides could be boiled down to an opposition between the value of freedom and the value of equality. Uh, and so for the Soviets, the people sympathetic to at least the theory of communism, the, the great thing about communist order was that it produced equality. It got rid of hierarchy um, at some cost to liberty. And the same thing's true, the obverse is true on the free world side, which is that protecting liberty can often exacerbate inequality. So, so that's a way of thinking of what the tension, what the tension was. And I'm sure more tension was uh, created by the fact that the U.S. established military bases around the world. Yeah, so that's the other side of containment. I mean, the, what, is, what, what does it mean to keep the communists in their box? It means at some point that you're going to have to send troops because, and of course, the crisis for this whole thing was Vietnam. You're going to, you say, well, we're going to draw a line here. This is the border of your box. If you go outside of that, we're going to push back. How are you going to push back? You know, by pamphleting, you know, by Radio Free Europe? No, you're going to have to push back by putting some kind of force uh, on the perimeter. And, and the U.S. did that. Um, mm -hmm. And ultimately, as I said, it got us into big trouble. And the time you covered uh, uh, the years from the end of World War II to Vietnam, but what impact did that war and the war in Korea have on the standing of the United States with the rest of the world? Did the American government lose its moral prestige? Well, there was some reaction against American presence in the Korea. Of course, that was, in theory, a United Nations uh, war, mm -hmm. but uh, that did cause 
people in Western Europe who were sympathetic to the Soviet Union, or at least to communism, to question the motives of the United States. But the real crisis, Leonard, as you know, because we were alive then, was was Vietnam, and that blew up in 1965, which is the year that we finally sent troops there and started our bombing campaign against the North. And that war went, the U.S. part of that war went on for eight years. Uh, we couldn't get out. And I think that really damaged the credit, political credibility of the United States. The United States in 1945, a lot of the world looked upon it as a very benign superpower. I mean, with the usual caveats that the United States gave a lot of foreign aid, it, you know, it, it extended itself to the rest of the world both as a source of wealth and of power to protect democracies. Um, but we burned through that capital in Southeast Asia. And what was the take of, uh, by European commentators on the impact of McCarthyism? Uh, as, as were many American commentators, they were very negative about McCarthyism. I mean, we gave, well, to think about this period is, we gave the Soviet Union a lot of propaganda material to use against us, and one of them was that, was the with these uh, with these witch hunts that McCarthy comes to symbolize? Which he wasn't the only person doing it by any means. He was actually relatively ineffectual. But there were all kinds of blacklisters and uh, anti-communist organizations that hounded people out of their jobs um, in the early 1950s. You write, uh, I'm quoting. If you asked me when I was growing up what the most important good in life was, I would have said freedom. As I got older, I started to wonder just what freedom is, what it can realistically mean. And, and nowadays, uh, the word is more likely to be invoked by someone on the right. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's the freedom, the freedom not to wear a mask. That's people's mm. idea of freedom. Um, and uh, that's very odd looking back at this period when it had a very different valence. So that remark I make in the, that you read, it's in the preface to the book, is just, I mean, I didn't write the book for that purpose entirely, but I realized that, that when I was young, that freedom stood for something that was important to me, and I really believed in it. There was such a thing as freedom or authenticity. Then you get older, you go to graduate school, <laughs> you get more cynical, you take sociology courses and so on, and you think, well, what does that actually mean to have to be authentic or to be autonomous? Um, and, you know, so it was, it was interesting to look back on a period when people didn't find that idea problematic. Well, it was, it was also a time when freedom was applied to causes that ranged uh, from uh, civil rights, radical acts of artistic self-creation, and even crime. But interesting, and interestingly, Martin Luther King Jr. used the word freedom 20 times and equality only once in his 1963 I Have a Dream speech. In that right. same year, uh, didn't segregationist George Wallace appeal to, quote, the call of freedom-loving blood to mobilize Southern whites to defend segregation forever? Yeah, they both used it, exactly, for opposite purposes. I think that the older generation of civil rights leaders uh, from the 40s, uh, their slogan was equality, because that. You know that's ultimately what it was what it was about equal status for uh, black citizens with white citizens and king who believed in equality totally i think he realized that rhetorically the language of freedom was going to be more effective particularly in a cold war context where that's what we're supposed to be what's supposed to stand for the country's supposed to stand for and that all that puts pressure on the federal government to live up to its slogans um equality is a dicey concept, as you know, Leonard, in the United States, because mm -hmm. people think it implies redistribution of wealth, which 
<laughs> which there's a lot of opposition to or resistance to. But freedom feels like a zero-sum good. It's like you just give out freedom. And it's like lighting candles. Nobody runs out of it. Doesn't really actually work that way either. But that was a less of a problematic term for King to use. So as you say, and this is the I Have a Dream speech in August 1963 at the mall, uh, he only used the word equality once in that speech. Everybody knows, let freedom ring. That's the sort of refrain of the speech. But that he, 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 I think he got that that was what was going to appeal particularly to the people in the government. Despite the subtitle to your title, uh, Art and Thought in the Cold War, you claim this book isn't about the cultural Cold War or Cold War culture. What did you intend it to be? Well, <clears throat> the cultural Cold War is a, is a subject uh, that has been much written about, that it takes the... It, it deals with the use of cultural diplomacy. So during this period, uh, the United States government, through various means, promoted American art and literature and scholarship and so forth abroad by sending exhibitions out, uh, sending translations of books to libraries and embassies around the world, um, creating scholar exchange programs and so on. As part of a general effort to show the superiority of the uh, of the free world of the American way. Uh, so there's an underside to that, which is that a lot of these or many of these uh, activities were paid for surreptitiously by the CIA. And mm. that all, something else that blew up around the time of the Vietnam War, uh, the revelation of the CIA's involvement. So a lot of, so there's been a lot of stuff written about how that worked and what the effect of it was and the, you know, the uh, sort of paradoxical nature of it and so on. So that's, that's the cultural Cold War. And then the culture of the Cold War, I just use that phrase to describe work that deals with art, movies, music, uh, um, travel, uh, whatever, as uh, reflecting Cold War ideology. So science fiction movies as about communism and so forth. So there's a whole body of literature about that. So I just was writing a different book. I was just trying to tell a cultural story without using the Cold War itself as a kind of determining frame for what was going on. You know, a lot of the stuff I'm writing, people weren't thinking about the Cold War at all. Um, they, you know, it was there um, the same way that conditions, you know, that we live in are always there. But it wasn't that they, I think they were consciously reacting to uh, the Cold War, what was going on step by step in American foreign policy. So it, it's just to say it's a different kind of book from a cultural Cold War book or a culture of the Cold War book. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large on BAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Louis Menand, whose latest book is The Free World Art and Thought in the Cold War, published by Farris Strauss and Giroux. Well, the U.S. already had a pretty rich culture. Hollywood had made some classic films. John Steinbeck, Henry Miller, William Faulkner, William Cross Williams, Ernest Hemingway page, had published major works. George O'Keefe and Edward Hopper were prominent artists. In music, we had Charles Ives and the great Louis Armstrong. So what changed after the war? We, uh, we did have, uh, we did have uh, a culture that the rest of the world was interested in. It's not like it just started in 1945. But what seems to have happened um, in a very general way is that the United States became a kind of central player in 
a world of culture that became increasingly global, which is the world that we're in now. Um, so New York and Los Angeles are still centers of finance and production of all kinds of entertainment and cultural goods. They pass through those, the world's goods pass through those cities. And, uh, and it's not that those goods are that American or Americanized. It's just that the United States is now a central player. In world culture, much in the way that Paris was, for example, in the earlier part of the century. Um, and that's part of what I'm trying to trace, mm -hmm. how that happens. And it happens partly because a cultural infrastructure grows up after the war. Bookstores, movie theaters, uh, independent radio stations, uh, uh, all kinds of marketing techniques and so forth that allow for the proliferation of cultural productions. There's just a lot more music around. People are going to museums, which they weren't before at the same rate. More people are going to college. It's just a period of cultural growth and opportunity. And then to, that opportunity allows for all this stuff to get, uh, to get passed through the United States and to spread around the world. So, so that's really what happened. So that the political capital we burned through, I think, in Vietnam, which I think we've never fully recovered, we made up for, in a sense, by, by acquiring all this cultural capital. There was an influx of emigres to the United States during the war years, but you point out that most of the artists among them were never fully integrated into the American art world. And when Paris was liberated, they went back as quickly as they could. I'm quoting you. So what do you think of the idea that after the war, New York replaced Paris as the art center of the world? It did, but it didn't do it right away. Uh, <clears throat> so what you're describing, the immigration, um, obviously a lot of most of these immigrants who came here who were leading scientists or artists or architects and so forth did not want to come to the United States. They were, they were forced out um, of Europe because of the rise of Hitler. And I would say generally the ones who came from Central Europe, from Germany and Austria, came earlier as they came mm -hmm. after Hitler rose to power in January 1933. They came 33, 34 in there. They stayed longer and they tended to get integrated more completely into American life. So they often end up living here. So a lot of the musicians, for example, um, ended up becoming basically American. In the case Many, of the painters, they generally ahead. came through Paris and that didn't start till Paris was uh, occupied in 1940. So in 1940, 41, a lot of surrealist painters, for example, um, came to New York uh, to hide out, essentially, because mm -hmm. uh, they were decadent painters and they were subject to persecution. So after the war ended, they went back because they were only here for three or four years um, and they still felt their home was in Paris. And in fact, it's a, people often say, oh, after the war, the art capital of the world moved from Paris to New York, but it, it didn't move right away. So that after the war, American painters still went to Paris to study. So a whole bunch of important American painters or who become important American painters went to Paris just as they had done in the 1920s. That didn't change. A lot of writers went to Paris. A lot of American post-war American literature was written in Paris. Adventures of Augie Marsh was written in Paris. Uh, Ginsburg's Kaddish was written in Paris. Uh, James, uh, James Jones wrote his novels in Paris. Uh, and James Baldwin's- uh, American presence there. And it James Baldwin's novel Giovanni's room is about an African-American expat living in Paris. 
Yeah, Baldwin finished his first two novels in Paris. He was mm -hmm. Baldwin lived there for eight years. Uh, so there was a ton of Americans in Paris, just as there had been in the 1920s, because just as it was in the 1920s, Paris is very cheap for Americans. Uh, it wasn't until 1959 that the Franks stabilized, Paris became more expensive, and my point, sufficient infrastructure for culture had grown up in the United States that people didn't have to go over there. So there were more art galleries showing contemporary art in the 60s than there were in the 40s. But things did change in other ways. For example, um, I, uh, when I attended the Chelsea School of Art in London in 1960, a number of my fellow students started imitating my abstract expressionist work. Uh -huh. yeah. And it was a pre-Beatles time, but British pop music was also very influenced by Elvis and, and other American pop stars. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think that the abstract expressionist uh, influence in Europe was not that enormous because European had their own tradition of abstraction. It went back way before that to the, to well, the, the period around the first. The French period. had the Tashist style, which was really abstract expressionism. Yeah, gestural art they called it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was very big in Europe. Anyway, it would have happened without the abstract expressionist. But in the case of pop music. The British have always copied American popular mm. music styles. Uh, it's you know back to the times of jazz. Um, they like American music, and so uh, in the late 1950s, that's how the Beatles started out. They covered American rock and roll. That's what they played. Um, they wrote their own songs, but they didn't perform them very much right away. Eventually, they did, but um, they were they were a cover band, um, and they were hugely popular because they were good at it, and there was a huge appetite for American rock and roll. Uh, and then there were, uh, well, the Brits loved the blues as well. There were British blues bands. Oh, um, for sure, yeah. The British, yeah, the, it, that's an interesting part of the story because the British rock groups and pop groups that covered rock and roll, which derives from R&B uh, and the blues, and then the groups in the 60s like Cream or John Mayall and so forth played the blues, uh, American blues. Uh, and interestingly, they it it was more effective when they did it than when white American artists did it because the I think the white American musicians looked like they were appropriating the black sound, but when the Europeans did it, it was more like homage. <laughs> they were you know they Eric Clapton was not Robert Johnson, but he could sing Robert Johnson and was not problematic. You mentioned U.S. government-backed efforts to promote American artists and, and writers with uh, anti-communist politics. Uh, they diverted funds to organizations like the Congress for Cultural Freedom and even the Paris Review. Uh, yeah. And Brambart's magazine revealed that the CIA infiltrated the student movement through the National Student Association. Uh, but you write, and I'm quoting, the final irony of the whole American cultural diplomacy effort after 1945 is that what the CIA, the State Department, the museums and the foundations tried to do, sell American art and ideas to other countries, was accomplished by other means and with little state uh, involvement. The world was not colonized by partisan review of the Museum of Modern Art. It was colonized by pop art and Hollywood. Yeah. That became international. I mean, abstract expressionism, I mean, every was famous style. Abstract expressionism really comes into uh, 
to definition around 1948 or 1949, right at the end of the 40s. That's when Pollock makes the drip paintings, that's when Rothko makes his boxes, and all the sort of characteristic styles of American fashion expressionism coalesce at that moment, and it was a great moment, and everybody knew about it. But the abstract expressionist stuff didn't travel very well. Um, you know, in Europe, it would, a museum would borrow an exhibition and they would show it. People didn't buy it, museums didn't buy it. Um, but that wasn't true of pop at all. Pop traveled immediately, it went around the world. Uh, the pop artists had shows all over Europe right from the beginning. It was an international style. Um, and that's what, if anything, colonized the world in the art, in the art business, it was pop art. Getting back to that whole business of uh, the, the meaning of the word freedom, Susan Suntag wrote in a 1964 review of Jack Smith's controversial film Flaming Creatures, quote, art is always the sphere of freedom. In those difficult works of art, works which we now call avant-garde, the artist consciously exercises his freedom. And then there were the obscenity trials for Allen Ginsberg's Howl in 1957, D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover, in 1960, Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer in 1964, and also in 64, Louis Malle's film Les Amants. Yeah. How might the current Supreme Court have decided those cases? Yeah, it's hard to imagine them rolling that back, I would say. <laughs> so the issue, of course, was that obscenity uh, was not protected by the First Amendment. And that's still the case today, believe it or not. It's hard to imagine when you go online that it's not, but it isn't. So the question was, what counts as obscene? And the Supreme Court between 1958 and around 1964, the cases that you mentioned, expanded the definition of what would be protected by the First Amendment in, in a book or a movie uh, to the point where basically everything was protected, even pornography. Um, and that allowed major writers and major publishing houses, which which were chilled by the existing state of obscenity law, to publish books like Norman Mailer's American Dream or John Updike's Couples or Portnoy's Complaint or Fear of Flying, uh, books that you would have gone to jail if you tried to publish in 1955. So that's that's a really important that's a really important thing that happens uh, in the US that it, which we had very restrictive laws about obscenity and, and we relax them significantly. Although I have to alert you to the fact that there are seven words we still can't say on over-the-air radio. <laughs> I think I know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. Uh, <laughs> but meanwhile, we had other things happening. Um, John Cage was composing silent music. Robert Rauschenberg wrapped an automobile tire around the midsection of a stuffed goat. Ornette Coleman abandoned chord changes and regular meters. Carolee Schneeman covered her naked body in snakes and raw meat. Uh, so they were all pushing at the bounds of what constitute the concept of, of freedom. Yeah, or the concept of art. I mean, that's the other side mm -hmm. of it. Uh, the, uh, this, there's this feeling like we, we'll just reinvent the idea of art. We'll figure out a new way to do it. Um, and it's, it's not, I think, the thing we can be mistaken about is to think this is just permissivism. It's not. It's very disciplined. I mean, Rauschenberg had reasons for making the goat with a tire the way he did. And Cage had reasons for writing the silent piece that he wrote for piano. Um, and Carolee Schneemann had reasons for lying on the floor and writhing around mm -hmm. in mud. So, uh, so what I try to do is explain what those people thought they were doing. And I think it's very interesting what they thought they were doing, but they felt liberated from this idea that there's one way to do art. 
Do you think that any of that was influenced by Cold War thinking? Because artists were highly censored in totalitarian countries around the world. Yeah, so one way to put it would be to say that the Soviets did have an official aesthetic, which was this doctrine of socialist realism. And that meant that work, works of literature and art had to be representational and had to represent the history of the class struggle and everything else would be individualism, bourgeois aestheticism and so on. And I, as I say, that's a pretty easy target for the US government because uh, all we had to do was to show that we don't have an official aesthetic. So we didn't just promote abstract expressionist painting, we promoted all kinds of painting when we sent exhibitions abroad because we wanted to show people around the world that there's no one way to make art in the United States. You could paint a soup can, you could throw paint on a canvas, uh, whatever, you could make a realistic painting of a boat if you want. It all, it's all art uh, and there's no, it's, there's, not, there's no prescription about how to do it. So I think that one of the reasons art plays a big role here is because it's very easy to show in works of art if you have, if you have a diversity of styles that are permitted particularly when the other side uh, is well known for, for only having one official aesthetic. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and, and streaming live at WBAI.org. We're back with Louis Manan, professor of English at Harvard University, a staff writer at the New Yorker, Pulitzer Prize winner, among his other accomplishments, talking about his latest book, The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War, which is published by Farris Strauss and Giroux. Now, um, to we talked about freedom, but totalitarianism was a term that was applied to Stalinist Soviet regime. But it already had been, uh, or was it just retroactively applied to Nazi Germany and fascist Italy? Yeah, the idea that Nazi Germany and uh, Soviet Soviet Union were similar regime types, you see that in the 1930s. The, I think the big book that kind of made a statement about that was Hannah Arendt's book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, which was published, I think, in 1951 in which she analyzes both as examples of, of, of a totalitarianism, which she thought was a new kind of government that the world had never seen before, not just dictatorship, but something new. And that book tries to analyze what that is. So uh, the idea that Nazism and communism, even though ideologically they're completely at loggerheads, even though they were enemies from day one, the idea that they're basically the same is, becomes a very widespread belief that there's something called totalitarianism, which can take various forms, but that has the same characteristics, has secret police, has concentration camps, uh, propaganda is run by the state, and so forth. And there's no private life and things like that. The, the picture basically painted in Orwell's 1984. So I, my argument is that anti-communism was in, in the 1950s in the United States was just one form of a completely almost universal belief of anti-totalitarianism. So for people on the left, the 
the danger would be the United States sliding in the direction of fascism. And for people on the right, the danger was the United States sliding in the direction of communism. But in both cases, it was the fear of a future that was Orwellian um, that, that governed their political thinking. Now, Hannah Arendt, uh, she obviously was not an American. Um, how much of an impact did uh, thinkers like her, European thinkers like her, have on what was happening? Um, uh, I'm thinking to some degree also about uh, the impact of the French, things like uh, existentialism, structuralism, <laughs> post-structuralism. Yeah. Yeah, the Europeans had a huge impact on the ways Americans thought. People like Hannah Arendt, or another figure I talk about, a little less, less known today, Hans Morgenthau, also a German immigrant, um, had a big influence on the way Americans thought about international relations. Uh, Hans Morgenthau had a big influence on the way people taught. He was an academic. People taught international relations. And Hannah Arendt had a great authority in the New York intellectual world. Uh, she was the real deal. You know, she was a huge, she was a huge superstar and coming up superstar in the German academic world when she was forced out because of her Jewishness of uh, Berlin, 1934, and then from Paris in 1940, and ended up here with no interest in coming to the United States. She didn't know the language. She had basically contempt for American culture. Uh, she was a highbrow. Um, she studied with Heidegger and Jaspers. I mean, she was a, a philosopher. Um, and uh, she had $20 in her pocket when she and her husband got here in 1942. So she she ended up staying here. But uh, till 1975. Yeah, she and she was an important person in New York intellectual life the whole way through, um, you know, at least up through the book on Adolf Eichmann. So, uh, yeah, so she, so her work does have a lot of authority. I think that Americans look to Germans like that, Europeans like that, intellectuals with some degree of awe, that they were more somehow more learned or more wiser than Americans might be. I don't think they thought that terribly consciously, but I think it, their foreignness gave them a certain kind of a gravitas. And many of the people you write about in this book are French. You write about Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, Marcel Duchamp, uh, yeah. Claude Lévi-Strauss, Jacques Derrida. Um, how do they fit into Cold War thinking? Yeah, they. that was another thing when I was writing the book. I was like, oh my God, there's another French person who I have to write about. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is kind of it's surprising a little bit to me how important French intellectual life was uh, in this period, not just outside of France. Um, so the influence of the existentialists, of course, is well known. Um, but then even Levi-Strauss had a big influence on the way Americans did work in what used to be called the human sciences, where we studied culture and wrote about it. Um, Derrida obviously had a big impact on literature departments. Uh, and then, uh, and then a bunch of thinkers who were French, uh, former French colonialists like Franz Fanon, um, Aimé Césaire, they have a big influence on people like Baldwin and Richard Wright. So uh, there's a lot. There's just a lot of France in the story, uh, kind of inevitably. 
Getting back to the whole business of totalitarianism, that that was a word that was used across the political spectrum, wasn't it? It was something that the liberal and socialist left, as well as the right, the center, and those to prefer to think of themselves as non non ideological used as well. Yeah, it's that's another term that's everywhere. It's the term itself actually originated in Italy in the nineteen twenties to describe Mussolini's regime mm -hmm. and it was meant in a positive way. It was meant, it's good because it's total. Um, mm -hmm. uh, then it becomes, of course, a pejorative. But yeah, it is, as I say, it's used, it, it's used to apply to more than communism is the point. It used to apply to a, a possible future of the kind that Orwell described. And uh, as you said, uh, Hannah Arendt's 1951 book was called The Origins of Totalitarianism. Uh, that was her attempt to explain the Holocaust as a function of the breakdown of the liberal state. But you note that the word she used when she was preparing the book was imperialism. Yeah. What what changed? She, yeah, it's she. Her book proposal doesn't mention the term totalitarianism at all. She's going to write imperialism about imperialism and anti-Semitism, and uh, I don't I actually don't know what changed her mind about how she was going to frame the book, but I suspect that she realized that the question of what is totalitarianism was more pressing, particularly for American intellectuals, than imperialism. So imperialism was an important subject for Europeans because they were losing their empires. It wasn't a big deal in the United States. It wasn't something people talked about in the United States as much. So it's possible that she felt this is a more pressing issue. It's also possible just that, as I felt writing my book, she realized partway through it, this is what the real subject is. Um, so that was important because a book on imperialism probably would have not had as much impact. Well, they are related because uh, the reason the European countries lost their empires was because of the reaction to what all of the things that had led up to World War II. Uh, suddenly, we were talking about people being liberated. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it felt it probably it felt uh, it, I mean it embarrassed European countries to have uh, to have colonies at that point. Although some of them still retained them for a while. Well, it embarrassed them, but also they couldn't afford it. <laughs> yeah, I mean the high point of European imperialism—that is, say, the year in which the European imperial powers had their maximum reach in the, over the globe was 1939. And by 1970, almost all those colonies were become, become independent states. That's a very that's a huge thing. In my mind, decolonization is the real story of the post-war period. It's much bigger than the Cold War. Um, it changed the globe, changed the world. We're still living through the consequences of that. When 1984 was published, George Orwell said, "I live with a deep fear of Stalinism in my heart." Um, so even though he was a, a man of the left, Stalin still scared him? Yeah, I mean, he, like a lot of, so Orwell was, had been a revolutionary socialist in the 30s, um, but he, he, he began to change his views about Stalin when he went to fight in the Spanish Civil War, uh, and he became an anti-Stalinist leftist. And, and that's, kind of the more that's kind of the partisan review position that those writers were leftists of various degrees but what they had in common was anti-stalinism um and so that's who orwell was 
uh, and that's what Animal Farm and 1984 were written about. Mm -hmm. And then Lionel Trilling wrote in 1946, I'm willing to say that I think of my intellectual life as a struggle not energetic enough against all the blindnesses and malign obfuscations of the Stalinoid mind of our time. Yeah. You know, the Trillings had, Diana and Lionel Trilling, uh, had actually been involved with the Communist Party activity, a Communist Front, and in the early 30s, and they could see up close the workings of the party, and they were horrified. They thought was, they were cynical, uh, inhumane, and so on, and they and they turned against communism, as many American intellectuals did between 1930 and 1938 or so. Um, and then trilling, as you say, by the 1940s, when you, that letter that you wrote, that you read from, uh, he, he decides this, he's going to commit himself to the anti-Stalinist uh, position or against the Stalinoid frame of mind. And his big book, which is published in 1950, a collection of articles, is called The Liberal Imagination. And it's basically a critique of the fellow traveling mentality. How telling is the anecdote you tell about Lionel Trilling asking Allen Ginsberg, 19-year-old <laughs> uh, Allen Ginsberg, what is Batman? Yeah, <laughs> yeah people like that, that anecdote. Uh, it's funny that uh, Al, the most famous student Lionel Trilling ever had was Allen Ginsberg, because it's hard to imagine two four different people. But Al, when Allen Ginsberg went to Columbia College, uh, he was a very good student, and he became infatuated with Lionel Trilling. This is in the 1940s. Um, and uh, as a lot of people did, uh, Trilling was a very charismatic figure. Um, and Trilling, on his side, was always very sympathetic to Jewish undergraduates at Columbia College, as he had been in the 1920, and uh, he, they became friendly in a kind of student-teacher way. And Ginsburg would show Trilling his poems, which this is very pre-beat stuff, and Trilling would comment on them or have them to tea or whatever, and, uh, and they became uh, quite close. So at one point, uh, Ginsburg has to leave Columbia, and he joins the Merchant Marine, which in that hmm. period counted as military service, and he put him on a boat somewhere out of Sheepshead Bay, and he has his correspondence with Trilling, who's at home in Morningside Heights, and at one point he, he, uh, he says, I can't remember, he says something like, oh, to fit in with another sailors, I bought a copy of Batman, and Trilling writes back says, who is Batman? <laughs> <laughs> so he was so totally out of the popular culture, he didn't yeah, even Trilling know Batman was. Yeah, was out of the popular culture, but he didn't even go to movies. I mean, he, hmm. uh, he was strictly a, a literary figure, yeah. Well, I think that that is a loss. I think we all should be aware, even if we don't necessarily uh, find it all that engrossing, uh, he, should yeah, know what's he, going I, on in the rest like, of the world. He was a bit of a valetudinarian in the sense that he, he just, he, it made him nervous to go to the movies, also to go to theater. It's funny. I mean, he, it's odd. It's not, he was a brilliant critic. There's no question about that. But he was very literary. And cerebral, um, he didn't. He didn't like the physical. I think part of the aesthetic mm. experience as much. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Louis Menand. Uh, his latest book, "The Free World: Art and Thought in the Cold War," published by Farris Charles and Giroux. 
And a number of people have pointed out that this might be seen as a kind of a follow-up to um, your earlier book, the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Metaphysical Club. But um, that was 20 years ago. Have you been... I know this is a long book, uh, 727 pages plus notes, but have you been working on it for all those 20 years or so? I spent about 10 years writing it. Yeah, I, I had other stuff wow. going on, Leonard, so, so it wasn't like I was just sitting around. But I uh, I spent about you, 10 years. Uh, looking at Batman movies, obviously. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I was doing other stuff. But I um, also moved to Harvard and, you know, I wrote a book on universities and stuff like that. So it was busy. But yeah, did, I think, we did, did we do a show for the Benefits of the Club? I think we did. Probably. Yeah, um, I think we did, yeah. But um, so do you see this as a follow-up? No, I don't think it's – well, it's a follow-up in the sense it's the next book. But mm. no, it's, I don't think of it as somehow connecting back to that earlier book. That book uh, – so the Metaphysical Club, thank you for mentioning it, is about the history of <clears throat> pragmatism in the late 19th century. <clears throat> and the book is pretty U.S.-centric, partly because the main figures are all Americans. And it's just the way I, I told the story in the context of American history. It's, it's true that all those people were influenced by European thinkers and writers, Darwin, uh, German science, and so forth. It's not, and they all studied in Germany, many of them did. But um, the, the book is kind of an American story. Whereas this book, I felt that's not a good way to tell it. A lot of American history, particularly of this Cold War period, tends to be US-centric um, for obvious reasons. But I felt I needed to step aside out of that a little bit and try to make the story be true to what I think is the more international nature of this story. So it's not just the U.S. coming up with stuff and imposing it on the rest of the world at all. It's an interactive story between American culture and culture of other countries in which we'll send a product abroad. Pop music is a great example. And they'll send it back in a completely different form, which will have an effect mm -hmm. again on what Americans do. Movies is another example of that. So I, tr I was trying to capture that, and I got some of it. There's stuff I couldn't do or didn't have space or time to do, like our interchange exchanges with Japan and the art world, which, is, which are fascinating. But if you look at it from a global point of view, you can see a lot of other stories there. You mentioned movies. Uh, European films influenced American movies. In fact, a lot of European emigre directors made noir films in the 30s. Uh, into the early 40s here. And then those films wound up influencing European films that followed. Yeah. Yeah, the Europeans uh, loved American movies on the whole. Uh, I'm talking about cineast people, you know, mm. intellectuals uh, and artists. But people like Truffaut uh, yeah, like could Truffaut. be seen as yeah. drawing a lot from American movies. Yeah, they loved them. Godard. So after the war, uh, the U.S. entered into a pact with France involving helping pay them to pay off some of their war debt and so forth. And part of that deal was that the French would open their screens to more American movies, more Hollywood movies. So during the war, you couldn't see American movies in occupied Europe. So when the war ended, all these American movies that had been made in the early 1940s, like Citizen Kane and Maltese Falcon and so forth, show up in Paris on Paris screens. And young uh, film lovers like Godard and Truffaut love these American films. So when they started making their movies about 10 years later, 
uh, 400 Blows is the first Truffaut movie, Breathless is the first Godard movie. Uh, they're very influenced by American film. Um, and particularly in the case of Breathless, which is kind of an American crime couple story, of which there are many iterations that Godard knew really well because he was a big student of film. Um, he's trying to make an American kind of movie. He's trying to make kind of a gangstery movie. Bill, um, Bill Mondo is Humphrey yeah, Bogart. It when you watch that movie, it doesn't seem American at all. It seems completely French. <laughs> so when the movie comes to the U.S., all these young Americans who are interested in getting into film see it and feel, oh, this is something very different. Let's try to make mm -hmm. a movie like this. And ultimately, they make Bonnie and Clyde, which is an effort to make a French movie in America. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with the, those who call the 20th century the American century? I don't know what that means. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, the, uh, I, the reason I ask is because a lot of, of people in reading your book and writing about your book had start up with the assumption that it's about the United States and then yeah. seem to be surprised that you're talking about other places as well. Yeah. Well, you know, we have to say as though you as though I mean, you just said art and thought in the Cold War, which, of course, can uh, covers um, most of the world. Yeah, it's not of the Cold War. It's in the Cold War. Yeah, this is the period. I mean, the Cold War is a very defining feature of the period. Obviously, it doesn't go away. Um, and uh, so that puts a kind of frame around what the period I'm talking about. But it's a world story. I mean, in so in works people who work historians work in this period people who do political history right now it's all global that's just the approach that they take um, it's no longer just from the american point of view i think in cultural history it does tend to be still pretty u.s centric um there's lots of exceptions of course so i was trying to be a little less u.s centric myself in telling the story and also you know when you write a book like this you go where your story takes you and my story took me to other countries there's a whole chapter on Britain uh, in the book. Mm -hmm. And a lot on France, uh, obviously <laughs> one of your favorite places. Well, it turns but, out, yeah. I am French, so it's okay. <laughs> well, you're a fourth generation Louis yeah. Menand, aren't That's you? That's right, I know. Nothing left but the sex appeals. <laughs> but you don't call yourself Louis Menand the fourth. No. My my dad used his, my dad was very proud of being Louis Menand the third. Yeah, I think it's a little pretentious. It's not like it's a very distinguished family. <clears throat> Is it fair to say that whatever practices mid-century Americans wanted to support or justified, whether it was avant-garde art, academic, literary criticism, or even heterosexual marriage, that they all saw it as uh, a way of taking a stand against totalitarianism? Sorry, what, what do you mean exactly? Well, because there, in in all cases, uh, we are uh, getting getting back to that word freedom. Yeah, freedom it constantly it permeates much of of the the writing of the time, does it, or the thinking of the time? Yeah, yeah. One even of the horrible aspects of the period here in the U.S. was that this anti-communist rhetoric was allowed to pervade public life. Uh, until the Supreme Court finally sort of started drawing some lines around 1958. But before that, certainly the 10 years after the war, you know, fluoride was a communist conspiracy. Sure. And it was just ridiculous. And that was allowed to happen. People like Eisenhower didn't say anything about it, um, or Truman. Uh, Truman instituted loyalty oaths for 
federal employees. You know, he created the national security state. Uh, so there's a whole deplorable side to, to this, which I also try to make clear in the book, even though it's not what I'm dwelling on, uh, in which the American way of life is justified by virtue of being non-communist. Um, and that takes a while for that to go away. Well, how, you know, how you still hear, you still hear today when hmm. President Trump called Kamala Harris a communist. What is, the, what, is he, what is he talking about? He probably doesn't know from communism, but that's still out there. In fact, Democrats are, were called communists in, throughout the Georgia elections as well. Yeah, um, what are people talking about? You know, it's, 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 so that's, that's something that dates from this period, unfortunately. And that's 60 years ago, 70 years ago we're talking about. Well, communism fell after 1970. But how long do you think the Cold War actually lasted or did it kind of just dissipate? No, it, it ended in a very definitive way with the Velvet Revolution. Gorbachev, and then finally in 1990, the Soviet Union basically voted itself out of existence. So they had a very, they had a very, like you could start it in 1947 with Truman's speech, and you can really end it in 1990. Um, and that was that was the end. How it, why it happened the way it happened is obviously a subject of debate. Right now, it looks like we're maybe engaged in. Uh a, an updated Cold War with Vladimir Putin. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> I think China is much more the uh, superpower antagonist. But in that case, it's not ideological. Um, it's not like we have a better way of life than you do kind of thing. It's economic. Because um, <laughs> the countries are so imbricated with one another economically, it doesn't the ideology thing just doesn't even work anymore. So I wouldn't say it's a cold war in the sense that we're talking about. The classic definition of a cold war is that you, you, you do everything to your enemy except shoot them. You know, it's just everything short of a hot war. And, you know, I think we could get into that with China, but I don't, it's not happening quite yet. I, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, as of course everybody knows, that there's an was an effort that's continuing to make the um, coronavirus associated somehow with China. Uh, Although there is talk about a cyber war with, with Russia, but uh, we've run out of time, alas. Uh, it's been a great pleasure talking with you. Oh, uh, thank you. It's been really fun. Thank you, Leonard. Louis Menand is a professor of English at Harvard University, a staff writer at The New Yorker, and a Pulitzer Prize winner. We've been discussing his latest book, The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War, which is published by Farris, Strauss, and Giroux. Thank you again. Thank you. It was great talking to you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to reach me directly, you can email me at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign up today, I need to take just a moment 
to ask you to support the station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on this program coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. You know, WBAI relies totally on listener donations, so if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at large, or even if you've just discovered our in-depth one-hour interviews, I hope you'll step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to help keep this show and this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored on the air by making a tax-deductible contribution. And to everyone who stepped up to support the station in the name of our show, thank you so much. I hope you'll join us again for tomorrow's show when John Harris will discuss his new book, The Last Slave Ships, New York and the End of the Middle Passage. We'll see you then.